You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. We're going to hear scripture now, Galatians chapter 2, and Sherry's going to read for us, and we'll catch the second half of chapter 2 this Sunday. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Sherry. Well, I think most of us who are on this journey with Jesus can think of times when we have been especially hard-pressed to live by faith. I was out for lunch a number of days ago with a friend here from church. We were at Mucho Loco, great Mexican spot by the post office. And just catching up as friends, as brothers in Christ, talking about ministry. And, and I said to him at some point, I don't know if I've ever had to live life in such a slowed down dependence on God. And I shared with them, we've been navigating some challenges with a couple of our younger kids and just finding in this season of life, we're having to wake up and just trust God for enough for that day. Can't think about tomorrow, can't think about next week. And God has been teaching us to live more and more by faith and hold on to his grace. And that is the theme of today's passage in Galatians. Will we live by faith or will we live on other terms? One way is a way of freedom and peace, and the other way is a way of futility. As this passage begins, we're now today reading the last part of the autobiographical section of the letter, which is just a big way of saying this is Paul sharing his faith story, his faith journey. One-fifth of Galatians is dedicated to his faith story because it's so pertinent to what he is addressing. He started the story back in the middle of chapter 1, and now in this last portion, he tells us this story that we only know from the book of Galatians. 
And that story starts like this in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now remember from our previous weeks in Galatians who Cephas is. That name's not so familiar, but then we see the footnote, and it's the Aramaic form of Peter. So Cephas is Peter, and Peter is very familiar to us from the Gospels. He had been the lead disciple of the Twelve, and he's well known in the book of Acts where he was an apostle and leader in the church. And Paul reports that Cephas, Peter, his friend and fellow apostle, came up to the church in Antioch. And that distance, Jerusalem to Antioch, is about 300 miles. It's at the base of modern-day Turkey. And Antioch was a key launching point for the gospel, especially to non-Jewish people who in the Bible are called Gentiles. And that, in fact, is the issue at hand. Paul says, Peter came to Antioch, and Paul had to oppose him or confront him because he stood condemned, it says. What that means is he did something blatantly wrong. And the details of what happened, we're not going to read all the verses again, but then it follows in those verses. And to understand more about this story, there are a couple of pieces of background that we need to know. First is that Jewish people did not share meals with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles. So they call it table fellowship. And they did not practice table fellowship with Gentiles. What's interesting about this is that it was never commanded as such in the Old Testament. So God did give his people food laws. There were things they should eat, things they should stay away from. But God never said to them to not be at the same table as Gentiles. People had added that part, as people are prone to do. The other piece of background here is that the food laws now on this side of the cross, after the cross, had been lifted. Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, in his sacrificial death, so the Jews no longer needed to stick to what we call kosher foods. And this is made very clear in Acts chapter 10, when God speaks to Peter in a vision about clean and unclean foods. And then he sends him off to share the gospel with a guy named Cornelius, who was a Gentile centurion. But here's what happens in Antioch, and this is what Paul describes. He says, Peter had been enjoying table fellowship with the Gentiles, which he knew was no problem. The food laws had been lifted. But then a certain group of Jews came up from Jerusalem, and what did Peter do? He changed his tune. So now, if you imagine the lunchroom in the early church, you'd see Peter, you know, he'd get his food, he'd come out into the cafeteria seating area, and instead of going to his usual spot with his Gentile friends in Antioch, he wavers, and he shuffles off to sit at a new Jewish-only table. Paul says it was fear that caused Peter to cave. He was afraid of opinion or disapproval of that circumcision group. And what that means is this faction within the Jewish church that said wrongly, you still have to follow the Mosaic law. It's a false gospel. Paul rightly calls this kind of conduct hypocrisy because Peter had known the right thing to do, had been doing the right thing, and now he's doing something completely different. And Peter's example is so influential And if you read in the Gospels, you see how influential Peter was. 
that in doing this, he leads other Jews astray. Even somebody with a good head on his shoulders and a soft heart named Barnabas, even Barnabas is led astray by this. So Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, and we'll stop there before the quote begins, because I want to look at that key phrase that we've highlighted, the truth of the gospel. It says they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. All of Galatians is centered on this. The true gospel, the true good news versus a false counterfeit gospel. And Paul discovered that that day in Antioch that a false gospel had snuck into the church. Now before we go into what Paul said, we'll pick up that quote. What did he say to Peter? I'd like to draw some initial principles from the first part of this passage. So we'll have three principles from the story and then three more from what he says. Looking at the story, here's the first thing that I would observe. Number one, even mature believers and church leaders can lose sight of the gospel. We should take note that of all people, this happened to Peter, the leader of the original 12 disciples. And not that he never made a mistake. If you read the gospels, he made his share of blunders for sure. But we also know he learned a lot since those early years. He'd been reinstated by Jesus after the denial. He'd witnessed the empty tomb. He preached at Pentecost. In all those early chapters of Acts and the miracles he saw, and yet still, Peter lost sight of the gospel. He slipped into hypocrisy and led others into error. And I think, boy, if that can happen to Peter, then it can happen to me, and it could happen to you. It's a sobering reminder. Not that it will happen, but the fact that it could, that none of us are beyond this kind of mistake, should put us on guard. Like when Paul said to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. He knew. He knew that what you believe really matters. That you believe the right things about Jesus and not the wrong things matters. There are false gospels galore that are easy and attractive to fall into. But what you believe and how that directs your action should correspond to the true gospel. That brings us to the second principle from the story. Here's the second observation. A true brother or sister in Christ will help me confront sin in my life. Paul knew When he saw what was happening in Antioch, he knew he had to correct Peter. And because it impacted so many of the Jewish believers and leaders, including Barnabas, Paul did it publicly in front of others. But Paul's correction, though severe, was not done out of a malicious heart. It was a rebuke, but its intent was to restore his friend and brother and to restore the church in Antioch. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that why groups play an important and essential role in our church family here at the Y Church. Because each of us needs to have that smaller fellowship within the church where you are known and loved enough to be kept from sin. Where are the people who love you so much that they know 
when you need to be warned. I hope you have those people in your corner that you can think of at least at least one or two names of friends who are like that. And I don't mean generic BFFs or besties, but I mean specifically a brother or sister in Christ who, as they cheer you along in life, are also there to help you root out unconfessed sin or to help you to see your blind spots that otherwise you'd miss and to extend to you words of truth and grace and forgiveness. What a wonderful gift that is. It's something that Paul and Peter had. Third principle, and the last one that we'll glean from the story, is this. The mature believer is willing and able to receive correction. Now, we're not shown Peter's response to this confrontation. That's not included in the story. But the way that Paul narrates it, it seems assumed that Peter assented, that he listened, that he received correction and changed course. The way Paul tells the story seems to make the assumption, but we also have more direct evidence from the book of Acts. In chapter 15, this is at the Jerusalem Council, it's Peter who takes on the very kind of thing that had swayed him in Antioch. Acts 15.5 is where you would see this story told. I'll read just a couple of verses. Acts 15.5 says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So there it is. That's that false gospel. And in verse 7, it says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And there's several verses there of what Peter is saying. He's putting them in their place, and he's saying things like, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So I take that as evidence that Peter appears to have received this correction in Antioch. And now as we think to our own life, we can be asking, are you and I able to follow this kind of example? To be able to receive correction is a sign of spiritual maturity. And this is why in the last bullet points of our leadership covenant that we use here at the Y Church, our leadership covenant says, I submit myself to mutually accountable relationships with the leadership team and pastors of the Y Church. Because we recognize there are no lone rangers in the Christian life. We need each other. And out of a tough situation, Peter and Paul show us what that can look like. Let's move then into the second half of the passage. And this is what Paul actually said to Peter when he confronts him. Depending on the English Bible that you have, some translations will show quotes around the entire rest of the passage that we read. So from 14 all the way to 21. And then other translations like the CSB or ESV will show quotes around verse 14 only. And then 15 to 21 is just Paul expounding on that to the Galatians directly. Why the difference? It's very simple. They didn't have quotation marks in Old Greek. And so translators have to guess where did the quote actually stop. But either way, the content is not changed and it carries the same meaning. 
And so Paul starts by saying, and this is verse 14, he says to Peter, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And then we'll pick it up in verse 16 for what I think is the crux of the matter. Verse 16, he says, A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this verse brings up some key terms for understanding Galatians, for understanding the gospel, so I thought we should define those terms. The first one is justified. It's a legal term in the Greek language. And it means to be declared righteous. So a judge is someone who would pronounce you righteous or in right standing. That's the first term. The next one is works of the law. And that is a way of following God's commands, doing right things, doing the works of the law. The third term to define is faith. And that means you are trusting in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And so you can see how these three terms fit together, right? There are two ways to be justified. There are two ways for you to be declared righteous. One is by the works of the law. The other is by faith. But the works of the law way will never work because we cannot follow God's commands close enough or do enough right things to be justified. And that's our fourth principle. Here's number four. No one is justified before God by good deeds, but by faith in Christ alone. Last week, Pastor Andrew's closing slide said, it is not about checking enough boxes on a religious to-do list. It is about placing our faith in Jesus. That couldn't be more true. And Paul continues to make that point. In his autobiography, I mean, he's just detailed it. He does the same thing in Philippians. He has more reasons than anybody to check boxes off the religious to-do list. All his accomplishments. I did that. I did that. I did this for God. I did that. But it's never enough. We cannot justify ourselves by being good. The stain of sin, the reach and impact of sin is so severe No matter how hard we might try, we can't just clean ourselves up before God. It's really this that brought Martin Luther to the end of his rope. In high school ministry, we just finished, we watched three weeks, kind of split it up and watched the story of Luther. And we saw this guy who was desperately trying to be good enough for God at the beginning of the movie. And it's why reading Galatians set him free. Because he realized... He was justified before God. He was, in fact, loved by God because of what Jesus had done for him, not anything he could do for himself. The works of the law was a dead-end route. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. We should keep in mind the law, the the commands of God, are not inherently bad. That's not the way Paul means it. Quite the contrary. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. 
But the idea is this. If I'm depending on the law to give me check boxes to prove my own righteousness, then I've got another thing coming. What the law really does is show me my need for redemption. And once I see that and I receive it, then I am set free to live for God, just like Paul says. Luther describes the flip. Here's how he describes what happens. He says, we no longer belong to the law, but the law belongs to us. See the flip? He says, and our works are not works of the law. They are works of grace from which there spring up freely and pleasantly those deeds which formerly the law used to squeeze out with harshness and power. So you can look at your life, and I can look at mine, and we can ask ourselves a a fundamental question. Are the things that I do motivated by trying to be a good enough person? Does it feel forced, or if not that, at least performance-based, or self-righteous? Or do the things that I do, the good things I do, spring up freely? like Luther describes it, because it's just a natural outpouring, a natural response to what Jesus has done for me? That's the question. Let's go to principle five, number five. This one's a little unusual because I have just made it verse 20 verbatim. The fifth principle is Galatians 2.20. But here it is, Galatians 2.20. I told Esther last week, that I think this is one of the very best verses in the entire Bible. It's this one right here. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to invite you to memorize that verse. Even if you've never done much with Bible memory or not memorized a Bible verse before, this is one that you should just have with you. And then when you memorize it, that's what happens. You know, you get to take it with you. In preparation for this message, I was meditating on this verse, and I'd find when I'd wake up in the night, where would my brain go? It would go to Galatians 2.20. And I just long for you to have that same experience, that this verse would accompany you in a deep and profound way. The verse tells us that those who place their faith in Christ are united with him by that faith so closely that his experiences become your experiences. That means when Jesus died on the cross, we are sharing in his death, so we're dead to sin. It no longer has power over us. Satan and evil no longer have sway over our life. And it means we share in his resurrection. So for somebody like Marilyn at age 92, when she passed away a few days ago, death was just this blip on the radar as she took her next breath and her next step into eternity. Resurrection life flows through your veins when you belong to Jesus. This verse, I think, gives such voice to the tension we live in, that you have life here and now in the body, This thing that is aging and wearing out, Paul says elsewhere, it's going to be rolled up like an old tent one day and set aside. But at the same time, 
as my body is getting old and falling apart, I'm living by faith. I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the gospel. One last verse and one last principle uh, to close. Paul wraps up the passage in verse 21 by saying, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so the principle, as I put it, is this. Number six, hold fast to the grace of God. You're going to finish this life holding on to something. It's not going to be your job. It's not going to be your athletic ability or your GPA or your list of accomplishments or your bank account. It's going to be what you've done in relationship to God. The Bible tells us that one day each of us will stand before his throne. And then on what basis will he determine your righteousness? Will it be on the basis that you gave it your best shot? That you tried to do right by people and be a good person? Or will it be on the basis of grace? that you are wholly and completely redeemed by Jesus. The encouragement that I want to give you today is for you to live by faith. Live in Christ that you are set free by the gospel. Let's just bow our heads in prayer together. Lord, it's so good to receive this good news again today. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us from ever losing sight of this profound gift and the truth that you have declared over each one of our lives, that in Christ we are free and forgiven, no strings attached. I pray, Lord, for each one who's here, that if somebody is in need of a paradigm shift, they've been trying to do the religious to-do list, trying to be a good enough person, Lord, that they would release that to you today and come into relationship with you that is based on the grace of your Son. Lord, we love you. Our lives are fully and completely yours. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.